1986, near the end of a long life, Bill Ryan sat down with a local historian in Tipperary, the late John Hassett, to videotape an interview. Bill was from Laha in County Tipperary and played football with his local club team, Lockmore Castellini. He also played football for Tipperary for 12 years between 1914 and 1926. It was a golden era. In that time, Bill won three Munster football titles and competed in two All-Ireland finals, winning one of them. That was a level of achievement unmatched by any Tipperary team ever since. But in 1984, as he looked back over the years, the medals faded into the background. He remembered instead now his teammates as friends. Three of them had been killed in combat. Jim Egan, Tipperary's great centre-back, had fought on the IRA anti-treaty side during the Irish Civil War. On April 19, 1922, Jim was at home in Paula Capel near Mullinahone in South Tipperary when Free State forces came to his door. He died in the ensuing gun battle. Jackie Brett, the sparky corner forward from episode one who started the brawl with the British soldiers as the Tipperary team travelled to Dublin on the weekend of Bloody Sunday. He was also an IRA volunteer during the War of Independence. On April 6, 1921, he was in his room at a safe house near Wine Gap, close to the Tipperary-Kilkenny border, cleaning his gun, when he was accidentally shot by a teenage member of the household inspecting some other weapons in the room. Then there was Michael Hogan at Croke Park on Bloody Sunday. Bill remembered his last conversations with Michael Hogan in Barry's hotel where the team gathered before going to Croke Park. Hogan pleading with the more experienced footballer to swap positions with him and mark the great Dublin forward Frank Burke. He remembered Hogan asking again just before they went onto the field but Bill struggling with a pair of boots too big for him after his own pair had been flung from the train during that fight with the British soldiers. He remembers Hogan giving him an extra lace to wrap around his boots. In time, Bill Ryan tied to the lace a medal presented after a Bloody Sunday commemoration match played between Tipperary and Dublin in November 1921 and kept it for the rest of his life. He was part of a unique team, better than anything produced by Tipperary before or since, that also reflected how the GAA spanned the full spectrum of Irish life. That Tipperary team were a collection of farmer sons and labourers, an ex-British Army veteran who fought in World War I, played alongside committed, active Republicans. They broke a mould in Gaelic football by emerging from the shadow of Kerry, who were already establishing their future domination of the game in the province of Munster and as a national force. Tipperary helped shape Gaelic football at a time when the sport and the GA was still in the process of forming itself. They were remembered as the victims and witnesses to a massacre in Croke Park on Bloody Sunday. 
but the journey that brought them there captures so much about the world they lived in and the world that they helped to create. So join us as we meet the Tipperary footballers who fought on the pitches and the battlefields in the third episode of The Bloodied Field. As we heard in episode one, Michael Hogan played his first game in Croke Park for Tipperary on December 10th, 1919. Afterwards, both teams were brought to the Mansion House in Dublin city centre for a reception. They were presented with gold medals before dancing the night away at a Cayley. That game and that night was the union of two footballing superpowers on the rise. By 1919, Dublin had already won 11 All-Ireland football titles, comfortably more than anyone else, but 11 years had also passed since their last. It was 19 years since Tipperary's last All-Ireland title, and they hadn't even reached a Munster football final since 1902. In that time, hurling had become the predominant sport in the county. But football in Tipperary was about to have a moment. Over the course of a few years, since the beginning of World War I in 1914, conditions had turned in Tipperary's favour. Kerry, who had already emerged as Munster's strongest footballing county, won their fifth All-Ireland title in 1914, but were soon engulfed by politics and strife. Kerry GAA officials were prominent in the planning of the 1916 Easter Rising. In late 1915, Guns were smuggled from Dublin to Kerry under the cover of supporters heading home after the All-Ireland final between Kerry and Wexford. When guns from Germany, destined for the Irish Volunteers, were captured off the coast of Kerry on the eve of the rebellion that April 1916, Kerry footballers and officials had been involved in organising security and boats to collect the cargo. By then, GAA activities in Kerry had been so severely disrupted by volunteer activity that the Kerry County Board were complaining of the difficulties getting any matches played. Of the 3,400 men jailed and interned after the rising was quelled, 1,800 were sent to a camp in Frongoch, North Wales, where Gaelic football was played to pass the time and maintain physical fitness. Many of them were Kerry footballers, and by 1918, Kerry hadn't competed in the Munster Football Championship for two years. When the War of Independence fully took shape during 1919, Kerry footballers were again absorbed into IRA units. Time for fighting was taken away from Kerry's time for football, and that made space for others. Cork had dominated Munster football in the late 19th century, but had drifted from prominence by the mid-teens. Gaelic football in Clare, Limerick and Waterford, the other counties competing in the Munster Football Championship, was never strong enough to sustain a challenge to the others. Tipperary faced many of the same problems as Kerry in terms of the developing War of Independence, but they were also blessed with a new generation of tough, talented players. Although hurling dominated sporting achievement in Tipperary, a necklace of small clubs in the southern corner of the county 
around the towns of Clonmel and Carrick-on-Shore always kept football alive. Of the 21 Tipperary Senior Football Championships between 1900 and 1920, only Nina in the north of the county and Lockmore Castellani to the west had won a title outside of the southern clubs. Grange Mokler, Michael Hogan's club, won five successive titles alone between 1903 and 1907. Feathered and Mullen shared 16 championships with Grange Mokler in the first 20 years of the 20th century. Those rivalries began producing a different type of player. And by 1918, Tipperary were on the cusp of something that no one else could see. Tipperary started the 1918 Munster Football Championship on a roasting hot day in June against Cork, fully expected by everyone to lose. But they won by six points. One goal and five points to two points. That was a hammering in 1920 terms. And there was talk of how good Tipperary were that day, but there was a lot more talk about how bad Cork must have been. Then Tipperary beat Waterford by five goals in the Munster semi-final, setting up a match against Kerry that September. Even though Kerry were weakened by the wars of the last few years, Tipperary were still expected to roll over. Instead, Bill Grant from Mullinahorn scored a crucial goal and on a wet, soggy day, Tipperary prevailed by that single goal. One goal and one point to one point. They returned home as Munster champions and unlikely heroes. Then, football was stopped in its tracks that autumn by a flu epidemic. In 1918, almost 25 million people across the world were killed in the first six months. 10,651 people in Ireland alone died in 1918. Six of the Tipperary team fell ill and the 1918 All-Ireland semi-finals were postponed till early 1919 and the worst of the crisis had passed. On January 12th, 1919, Tipperary played their first match outside of the Munster Championship for 19 years and defeated Mayo by a point to make the All-Ireland final against Wexford. Whatever the scale of the challenge to beat Cork and Kerry, beating Wexford made everything else seem like schoolboy stuff. Wexford were already Gaelic football's first great team. They were in this final seeking their fourth successive All-Ireland title. No team had ever won four in a row. And now, on the biggest day of all, Wexford were pitted against a county that hadn't even made a final for nearly 20 years. It looked like history was being served to Wexford on a plate. But Tipperary's reputation now preceded them. They were tough in defence and stubborn up the middle, possessing just enough high-end attacking players to squeeze victory from the tightest spots. The 1918 All-Ireland final team was also full of personality, matching every shade and contour of the world around them. Their captain, Ned O'Shea from Feathered, was strong and forceful and a born leader. So was Gus McCarthy, a clever, cerebral corner forward. Jimmy McNamara from Care was once offered a handsome wage to play soccer for Glasgow Celtic, 
but he decided to stay at home. Standing at 5 feet 4 inches, the living wasn't always easy for Jimmy as a Gaelic footballer, but he had pace and a sidestep that saved him at a time when most footballers ran in straight lines. Arthur Carroll was one of the best goalkeepers of the era. The team was also peppered with IRA volunteers, Jim Egan and Jackie Brett among them. Tommy Ryan from Ballyluby became an IRA volunteer as soon as he was old enough. The story went that on the night the Easter Rising began in Dublin, Ryan called to his godfather, James Hanrahan, frustrated by the lack of action in Tipperary and looking to make some kind of gesture. He settled on tying an Irish tricolour to the highest point in Ballyluby, the steeple of the local Protestant church. As he descended, the floor of the steeple collapsed beneath him. Tommy Ryan fell 16 feet, but he got up without a scratch. The flag flew for a week. On the fringes of the Tipperary team were players like Frank Scout Butler, a goalkeeper from Feathered, who served with the British Army on the Somme a few years before. Dan Hogan, now working and playing football in Monaghan, while trying to raise chaos with Ono Duffy in the local IRA, was almost certain of a place on the team if he had been around. Davy Tobin had scored a goal against Cork and a point against Kerry, but was still recovering from the effects of Spanish flu by the time the 1918 All-Ireland Final was finally set for February 16, 1919. With Tipperary inflamed by the killing of two RIC men at Salahed Beg by the IRA and the beginnings of the War of Independence, the increased army and police intrusion made training nearly impossible. Instead, Tipperary went into camp for two weeks in Dungarvan, County Waterford. They played some games against Waterford and they stayed in the Eagle Hotel, walking the town at night to stave off the boredom. Tommy Ryan, who had been arrested the day after the Salahed Beg attack, joined the team, having been released from Waterford Prison. He noticed a barmaid in the hotel being courted by a police officer and tracked their movements for a few nights. One night, he asked Bill Grant, another Tipperary player, to come with him. This time, they followed the barmaid and the policeman until they stopped to sit on a bench. The policeman's gun was hanging loose beside him. Pull your collar up, Ryan whispered to Grant, and pull down your hat. The two men continued past the courting couple. Then Ryan spun back and grabbed the gun. The policeman spun around to find Ryan pointing the gun at him. The players ran like hell into the night. The barmaid never approached Ryan for the rest of his stay, and neither did the policeman. On the day of the All-Ireland Final, over 10,000 people turned up at Croke Park. Tipperary were missing three players still fighting the effects of Spanish flu, but they started well. Although Wexford pushed them backwards as the half went on, Tipperary only trailed by a point, three points to two at half-time. Even when Wexford edged too clear early in the second half, Tipperary refused to back off, but the absence of their strongest forwards started to show. The last quarter, in particular, was a mess of near misses for Tipperary. 
the Wexford goalkeeper appeared to carry the ball over his own line, but Tipperary weren't awarded a goal. They were awarded three free kicks near the end. One hit a goalpost, another rattled the crossbar, and the last one, well, that just sailed wide. One final chance fell to Gus McCarthy in front of the Wexford goal. A chance for Tipperary's best forward to level the game and bring Wexford, the greatest of them all, to an unlikely replay. But his shot went wide. Wexford were safe. History was made. Tipperary went home with hope for the future, but nothing else. The rest of 1919 passed like a blur for the Tipperary footballers. With the war of independence raging, games being disrupted by the authorities and more police and more army being poured into the county, playing football matches disappeared into the background. They returned to Croke Park two months after the All-Ireland final for a much publicised and anticipated rematch with Wexford in a fundraising game for IRA prisoners, but they lost. On May 26th, 1919, they went to Cork to play Kerry in the first round of the Munster Championship. The crowd was small, but the game was magnificent. Kerry won by a goal, two goals and four points, to one goal and four points. Details in the newspapers were scant because reporters were hindered from travelling by the troubles now engulfing all of Munster. But the word about Tipperary was still good, even though their season was suddenly over. They still beat Wexford and Kerry in challenge games as the championship moved along without them, but those wins only tormented them more. At the end of the year, a local GA correspondent was moved to poetry to describe the frustration of the entire season. Of all the words of tongue or pen, the saddest are it might have been. In 1920, playing any matches and running off any GAA competition required small miracles. But the GAA found ways. By late summer, three out of four hurling and football provincial championships had been completed, even though a ban on public gatherings across Munster in July 1920 upset their schedules. Tipperary and Clare got together for a quickly convened Munster football quarter-final in June but delivered the result no one wanted. A draw. A replay in July finished level again. Clare offered to play extra time, simply to decide the game, but Tipperary refused. Their form at the time was so poor, maybe Tipperary were playing for time. Another replay also guaranteed a match in Clonmel. But crowds travelling to games were now so small, they weren't the money-spinning events of old. In the end, the replay was finally played on August 15th, 1920, and Tipperary won by nine points. And that was it. Playing the Munster football semi-final against Waterford before the end of the year looked almost impossible. The Munster hurling final had already been postponed into September. A railway strike had disrupted transport during the summer. In Cork, Terence McSweeney, the Sinn Féin Lord Mayor of Cork, had been arrested and had begun a hunger strike in Brixton Prison to the death. His friend, Tomás McCurtain, 
the previous Lord Mayor, had been shot dead by police in March 1920. With McSweeney near death as October began, Cork County Board called off all GAA matches and the GAA's Munster Council followed suit. Whatever about the pressures of politics and war, the Tipperary football team still needed a game. So they looked to Dublin. On November 1st, 1920, a letter appeared in the Freeman's Journal newspaper. It was reprinted in the Sport newspaper on November 6th. From the desk of Tommy Ryan, Secretary of the Tipperary County Board, it read, We understand that Tipperary's superiority over Dublin in football, despite two decisive victories by Tipperary, is being questioned by Dublin. We, therefore, challenge Dublin to a match on the first available date in any venue for any object. Signed, T. Ryan Secretary, E. O'Shea Captain. It was audacious and unprecedented and it didn't make a whole smack of sense. There hadn't been any bad blood between Tipperary and Dublin and the newspapers tried to explain Tipperary's call-out but they couldn't. We did not think the comparative merit of Dublin and Tipperary football was a matter of very keen current debate, wrote the correspondent for Sport. But Dublin agreed to the game and the GAA decided it would be played under the familiar euphemism in aid of an injured Gael. This usually meant that all proceeds went to the IRA Prisoners Fund, but this time the money would go to an IRA man badly beaten up while helping to disperse touts and bookies from the vicinity of Croke Park before a recent match. This match was fixed for November 21st. Meanwhile, the players in Tipperary lived through mayhem. On October 30th, more armoured cars were approved for use in Ireland. On the same day, over 5,000 people attended a mass in Carrigan Shore in memory of Terence McSweeney, who had died in Brixton Prison. A few days later, 17-year-old Kevin Barry, an IRA volunteer, was hanged in Dublin for his part in an ambush. A week before Bloody Sunday, three RIC officers were killed in an ambush near Aherlow in South Tipperary. Another was badly burned when the truck they were in caught fire. That night, four truckloads of soldiers and RIC men set out for Tipperary town and caused £36,000 worth of damage. In the middle of the maelstrom, there seemed no beginning or end to any of this. But at least a football game on a Sunday afternoon in Dublin offered, even for a couple of hours, an escape back to normality. That was what they all looked forward to. That's not how it worked out. Join us next time on the Bloodied Field podcast when we meet Tipperary's opponents, Dublin, already burdened by the same expectation that followed them for most of the coming century. Another team of rebels and gifted players, many of whom saw no distinction between the twin duties of playing for Dublin and fighting for the IRA. Thanks for listening. 
The Bloodied Field podcast is written and produced by me, Michael Foley, and edited by Andrew Foley. We had one special guest on the show, Jackie Cahill, who read the letter sent on behalf of the Tipperary team, calling Dublin out. You can find us and follow this full series of podcasts at gaa.ie forward slash bloody Sunday or on Spotify. You can also contact us on Twitter at bloodiedfieldp1 or email us at bloodiedfieldpodcast at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do spread the word. This is a story we feel everyone needs to hear. <laughs>